working our way through Deuteronomy 30. We're starting in verse 11 tonight. Moses has been preaching a sermon in Deuteronomy 29 and 30, uh, impressing on his people commitment to his covenant faith in him, and we're coming to the end of that, that little mini-sermon. So, a sermon on a sermon, Deuteronomy 30, starting at verse 11, which reads, For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It's not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today, that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him For he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. Amen. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know, uh, this this was challenging for me, O Lord to bring to ourselves, O Lord. So I pray, Lord, that you would help me to make this really clear for your people. And there's something else about this sermon, Lord, that I feel a big need for. Not only is it just hard to understand sometimes, uh, but it's impossible for me to press this on hearts like I would like. So we pray, Lord, that you would be all the persuasion, that you would be all the power of this passage, that you would seek out the hearts that need this particular thing and Make it penetrate deep into the hearts, Lord. That there be those tonight that would choose life because of this sermon. Even as we gather here amongst believers and in this church, Lord, that there be those that choose life and be built up in that life. We pray, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start tonight by talking about altar calls. Uh, When I was writing this sermon, it actually occurred to me that I might have to explain what altar calls are to some of the younger folks here because we don't really have them that much in our wheelhouse. Uh, Well, an altar call was something that was really popular, especially in the 1800s, especially early 1900s. It's still popular in a lot of circles today. It was something a preacher would do at the end of an evangelistic sermon. At the end of the gospel presentation, the preacher would give an impassioned plea for the people to make a decision for Christ right in that moment. 
I think some of us love the idea of an altar call. I know, as I've had you in my house over the years, there are many of you that have actually been saved through an altar call. And I also know that a lot of us in our circle, we kind of make fun of them sometimes. Though I don't think it's actually the altar call itself that we make fun of so much as the manipulative tactics that some preachers use in an altar call. Some preachers doing things like, just keep playing the music. Ruth, keep playing uh, for 30 minutes and have people close their eyes and raise their hands and keep going until people are pressured to accept Christ and things. But I want to say from the start, I think altar calls, that calling people to a decision, it's a very biblical idea. I actually wish that I did a better job at them sometimes. Uh, because tonight what we're looking at is we're looking at one of Moses' altar calls. All throughout chapters 29 and 30, he's been preaching about commitment to the covenant, faith in Yahweh, and now he's just laying it on the line. He is calling for a decision. So tonight we'll look at three things. First, we'll look at, well, what's Moses calling us to? Then we'll look at Moses' ending argument. We've been looking at his arguments all along. This is why you should commit. This is his ending argument. And then third, we'll look at, okay, let's make sure we understand how this applies to us today in the New Covenant, in the New Testament. So first, let's just make sure we know what Moses is calling for. So I think we see what Moses is calling for uh, in verses 11 and 16, he says. In verse 11, he says, For this commandment that I command you today, it's not too hard for you. In verse 16, he says, If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today. So he's calling his people to obey a command. He's calling them to obey a set of commands. So what commands is he referring to? Well, he's referring to an entire covenant document that he's just brought forward. He's referring to this entire book of the law that he's assembled for them and brought to them. We know this because Moses talks this way about this book of the law, both as he introduces it and as he concludes it. So in, back in Deuteronomy 4.44, uh, maybe years ago in, in this series, the book of the law begins, this is the law. Not the singular law, but this is the group of law that Moses set before the people of Israel. And the book of the law ends in chapter 29, verse 1. These are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people. That's his summary. That's his ending of that section. So furthermore, when Moses tells them, obey this command, obey this book of the law, it's clear he's not just telling them obey a specific rule or obey just a, a list of rules. Uh, it's bigger than that. The covenant's bigger than just that. Verse 16 and verse 20 show us that. Shows the covenant is, is bigger than that. It shows us that it's also about loving the Lord. It's about walking in his ways. It's about holding fast to him and obeying his commands. So what's Moses calling his people to do? He's calling them to exercise faith in Yahweh through his covenant. This faith involves three things. Let's make sure we know what faith is. Uh, it involves knowledge and assent and trust. They're the three things that Moses calls for all throughout Deuteronomy, throughout the book of the law. Maybe another way of summarizing it. Because for a person to have faith, they need to know the truth. They need to know who God is. It's the knowledge. Then they have to believe that it is the truth. They have to assent to it. They have to feel it in some way. That's the assent. And they also have to lean their weight on the truth. They have to depend on the truth, to follow the truth. That's, that's the trust, the knowledge, assent, and trust. It reminds me of an illustration that I heard by old Pastor Martins, Hamilton, New Jersey, probably 20 years ago now. 
Uh, I'm sure I would get a lot of this illustration wrong because it was 20 years ago. I also think, though, it kind of speaks to the testimony of God's word as it's preached, that you can remember things from 20 years ago, but uh, I remember him telling a story of a tightrope tight walker doing stunts over Niagara Falls. Apparently, at one point, he pushed a wheelbarrow across filled with bricks over this tightrope, and the people watching had a certain amount of faith in this man, this tightrope walker. They, they knew he could make it across the tightrope. They had heard of him. They had knowledge of him. They believed he could do all kinds of stunts. They'd actually seen him do some of these stunts. That's the ascent. But when he asked for volunteers to get in the wheelbarrow, it turned out they didn't have a lot of trust in this man. Nobody got in the wheelbarrow. Well, this is the kind of faith that the covenant's been asking for all along, a knowledge. This is who God is. This is how he feels about you. In a sense, uh, a fear of the Lord, uh, a trust. Uh, here are the things he wants you to do, and if you do them, they'll go well for you. And so throughout Deuteronomy, we've been hearing the call for knowledge. God's people are supposed to listen. He says, hear this, listen, remember, remember the Lord did it. Teach their children, You're supposed to keep the knowledge alive. They're supposed to know what God is like. Then throughout Deuteronomy, we've heard the call for assent. Not just, don't just know this stuff, cling to this stuff. Fear him, Deuteronomy says. Love him with all your mind, soul, heart, and strength. Take things to heart, Moses writes over and over again. And finally, Deuteronomy, it's really heavy in asking God's people, don't just know about me. Don't just know that it's true. Do something with it. Uh, don't depend on your own righteousness, he's quick to say, but walk in my ways. Keep my commands. Deuteronomy is full of all kinds of laws that illustrate his Ten Commandments and God's people would have to follow these to show their trust. They, they could do these things. They could tithe. They could make cities of refuge. They could rescue female captives. All these things. They were to show that they trusted God by doing what he said. Trusting that he will do them good if they get in the wheelbarrow and if they lean their weight on him. This is what Moses is calling God's people to do. A full faith embrace of God and who he is and what he said to do a full faith embrace of this book of the law, of his covenant. A full faith embrace of him, of Yahweh. So that's what he's calling for. Now let's look at his ending argument. He's already said before, he said, you should do this because of all the kind things I've done for you. That was his first reason we looked at then. You should do these things because, well, if you don't, it will not go well for you. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That was our second reason. Our third reason was you should do this because even if you're in exile, even if you've blown it, you can always return to me. You can always come back to my grace. But that, this is our last point. Here's his ending argument. We have to look at, well, how does Moses try to close the sale here? I think his argument, his ending argument, is aimed at overcoming any reticence that his people might be feeling. They might have some objections at this point. They might feel like, well, that's all well and good, but I don't know. I know that I personally have to be a salesman's worst nightmare because I'm very slow and I'm very indecisive. I don't like parting with money. And sometimes I get overwhelmed when it comes to big purchases. I say, we have to let me think about this. And, and I think, well, this is so beyond me, this crawl space, this chimney, this whatever, this... And... Uh, I'm not always all that confident about what I want. 
Moses cuts through all these tendencies. If they have any of these tendencies, he cuts through all of them in his clothing. He roughly says three things to help them come the rest of the way. He essentially, first, he tells his people, you know, this isn't beyond you. It's not beyond you. In other religions, uh, people needed to send messengers to the heavens to find out what their gods want. Their gods are inscrutable. Their gods don't communicate well. You need a messenger of some kind. Uh, Other religions, some philosophers, they travel the whole world in pursuit of truth. Like the Epic of Gilgamesh. They have to travel through the whole world to find truth, but not Israel. Israel's God tells them his will directly, understandably. He spoke to them through a mediator, through mediators, through prophets. Tell them exactly this. He had it all written down in a book. It's written down by this point. He called it the book of the law. So God's covenant wasn't just for great men of means, great women of intellect. Uh, It was for everybody. His will wasn't communicated in a strange language, through codes and ciphers, Da Vinci Code kind of stuff. It's not laying out Herculean tasks either. Like Moses says in verse 14, the word is very near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart so that you can do it. So sure, God has mysteries. He said before, the secret things belong to the Lord. He still has much that's mysterious here and even now, but he also says, but the things that are revealed, the things that I've shown you, they belong to you and your children forever that you may do the words of this law. So yeah, God tells his people, none of this is beyond you. It's right within your reach. I brought it right down to you. Second, he tells the people, everything he wants is crayon simple. He actually just lays out a choice for the people. Let me make it easy for you. I have set before you today life and good or death and evil. It's a pretty easy choice, you might think. Uh, Choice makes a lot of sense. If God's the ultimate, then your relationship with him determines everything. Life and death, good and evil. And so if the people follow the Lord and his covenant by faith, they'll live and they'll multiply, they'll be blessed in the land. If they turn from God and serve idols, like he's been saying all along, Moses is emphatic in the Hebrew. He says, you will die, die in Hebrew. He says it twice. You will perish, perish. In perishing, you will perish. So it really does boil down to a simple choice. Ice cream or arsenic? Which will you have? Uh, Happy with God forever or miserable without God forever? Because on a certain level, this is always man's choice. God always gives us what we want in the end. I love how Matthew Henry puts it. He says, those shall have life that choose it. Those that choose the favor of God and communion with him for their felicity, for their happiness, and prosecute their choice as they ought, shall have what they choose. They'll have it. Those that come short of life and happiness must thank themselves. They would have had it if they had chosen it when it was put to their choice. But they die because they will die. That is, because they do not like the life promised upon the terms proposed. So Moses persuades his people. He makes the argument as crayon simple as he can. Here's the choice. 
But not only that, but he also pleads with his people. He says, okay, here's the simple choice. But here's my plea. Therefore, I like to picture him yelling this when he reads it. Choose life that you and your offspring may live. We're covenantal, by the way. The Lord would have you choose life. He wants you to choose life. Please choose life with him, Moses is saying. And he points out that the choice that you make has implications for your children. Please choose life for you and your kids, he's saying. So that's second. Second, he makes everything crayon simple. Then third, he calls in witnesses. Might be something you read and you just kind of just kind of toss it out. Oh, there's some old verbiage, but it's very important. He calls witnesses. Verse 19, he says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Now, a witness is a really common thing in the covenants of that day. You call in a witness, right? Usually the highest and holiest covenants, they call on gods as witnesses, because what better witness can you get than a god, right? But that can't be the case here because God is one of the parties of the covenant, can't call him the way he's, he's one of the people in it. So instead, Moses, at God's direction, he appeals to heaven and earth as his witnesses. He does this other places, like Micah 6, other places. So he does this because they're the largest and most enduring things besides God that I can think of anyway. So the question then comes, well, why does Moses call on witnesses? Why does he call heaven and earth as witnesses? Well, there are always witnesses to a covenant because they're there for accountability. You think of a marriage, even today, we still have witnesses, we still, you might not know this, but you still have to go into a back room and sign marriage certificates to show, yeah, this actually really happened. We're not just trying to get some uh, joint tax filing or things like that, it really happened. And the reason is that, hypothetically, if someday one or both of the people getting married, if they stop being faithful to their marriage, the witnesses have something to say. I was there when you got married, brother. I saw you take those vows. You promised to be faithful. You made your commitments in the eyes of God. How can you do this thing? Witnesses have a function. They, well, they witness it for the purpose of the government, but for our purpose, witnesses also, they leave a people without excuse. We saw you do that. So the use of witnesses adds another level of seriousness to this choice. He's laying out a simple choice, and he's saying, this is really serious choice. Because when Israel would someday turn away from the covenant, all creation would be there to say, oh, everything that God brings is fair. You agreed to this. I was with you when you covenanted with God. I was there when you entered that solemn agreement. You said that you would do these things, and you did not do these things. He said he would do these things. He's doing exactly what he said he would do. God is fair. God is just. You are not. Therefore, you are without excuse, is what all creation says to God's people who turn from him. We need to turn back to him. So all this to say, it's serious. So at the end of all this, where here's Moses' closing arguments in a nutshell, just bringing them all out. He's calling out to God's people. He's saying, embrace Yahweh and his covenant by faith. There's no reason not to. His will is accessible. The choice is simple. And now all creation testifies to the fact that God has placed this choice right in front of you. Don't miss this chance. Choose life and be happy in Yahweh forever. That's the powerful way that Moses ends his altar call that day.
So now we're on our third point. And now uh, that about wraps up Moses' ending argument. Now what's left for us, and it's my delight, uh, is to figure out how all of this applies to us today. And fortunately, the New Testament just tells us how this applies to us uh, because Paul quotes this passage at length in Romans 10. I'd have you turn there. Would you turn with me to Romans 10? I need you to see it. This is the difficult part of the sermon because it's difficult to see exactly how he picks up this text and uses it in a new context. But it's really brilliant. The more I study it, the more I saw it. Oh, so brilliant. Romans 10, starting at verse 1. I'm just going to read through verse 9, give you the whole picture. Romans 10 says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be safe. Talking about his Jewish countrymen. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, let's ask the same questions of Romans 10 that we asked of Deuteronomy 30. To keep it simple, what is Paul calling us to? And then what's his ending argument? How is he persuading us? So first, what is Paul calling us to? Well, Paul is essentially calling us to the same thing that Moses was with one significant difference. He's still calling us to faith in Yahweh, still calling us to faith in, in Yahweh as he appears in his covenant. But this time, he's not just calling us to faith in the written word of the old covenant. Instead, he's calling us to the personal word and the new covenant in his blood. He's calling us to faith in Jesus because Jesus is the very substance of the covenant. Jesus is the substance of the covenant. So follow me on this. In the old days, Moses called his people to faith in the context of the old covenant because that's what they had. That's what God had revealed up to that point. But the old covenant was never the end game. It was preparatory. It was preparing God's people. All of its ceremonies and its institutions, they were preparing God's people for a greater and a clearer revelation of his salvation. A salvation that was finally to be revealed in Christ. And the old covenant, it never depended on man's efforts to bring something down or bring something up. Moses says that in this passage. And the old covenant salvation came through faith in God's word. So much is similar. In verse 14 of our passage, Moses says, it's a word that's in your mouth and in your heart. Paul picks that up here in Romans 10.8. He says that this word that Moses was talking about is the word of faith that we proclaim. It's the gospel. Paul says it's always been the gospel. Same gospel. Even in the old covenant, salvation was never achieved just through human effort. It was always through God's effort. That's why in our passage today, Deuteronomy 30.20, Moses says, yes, love God 
Obey his voice and hold fast to him. Why? Because he is your life. Because he is your length of days. Salvation's always been found in the person God. Now we know that it comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. That's why Romans 10.4 says Christ is the telos. Christ is the telos of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Telos can mean end, like in the ESV. It also can mean goal or fulfillment. Get this. Jesus is the end goal of this law we've been studying. It's all been leading to him. Uh, He is the fulfillment of the law. The law pushes us to him as the one who obeyed the law for us, the one who took the consequences of the law for us. And he is the end of the age-old lie that the law is another path to God. You can get to God just by following the law. He's the end of that because Jesus is the only way back to God. Jesus is the end goal of the law. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus is the end of the lie that the law is another way to God. So what is Moses? After all that, what's Moses calling for us today, back in Deuteronomy 30, even picked up, translated for us into new covenant language in chapter 10 of Romans? He's calling you to faith in Christ. He's calling you to faith in Christ, who is the very substance of the covenant. Now, I just really have one last thing to do uh, for tonight. Uh, Really, Paul's picking up what Moses is saying. He's saying, well, you have this choice to make. Christ or not Christ. All things in Christ are nothing without Christ. And he's calling you decision to Christ. He's saying, you need to follow Christ. You need to put your faith in Christ. You You need Christ. He wants you to put your faith in Christ. And so what I want to do for the rest of our time tonight, I just want to do like Paul, and I want to persuade you to make this choice. Uh, Moses did that. Paul did that. I want to do that. I want to take my shot at you. Because this is your choice. This is everyone's. This is the world's choice. He sets it before you again tonight. This, This sermon is God setting this choice before you again through a a weak little preacher. He says, do you want God or do you not want God? You can have him if you want him. Do you want life and good or do you want death and evil? Life and good are only found through Jesus Christ. That's it. So this is your choice. Actually, your eternal destiny hinges on whether or not you put your faith in Jesus Christ. John the Baptist said almost the exact same thing. John the Baptist, John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. You have it. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Same message. All through the, our Bible, so consistent, same message. So I'll just ask you, do you feel like, but that's too hard for me. Like, this is really overwhelming. This is going to call for a lot of changes. This is, kind of seems a little crazy. Well, like Moses would say, I'd say, well, no, it's, it's not too hard for you. It's not too overwhelming. It's, it's not crazy. It's so simple. You broke God's law. He's promised to punish you for it. But because he loved you, he sent his son to take that punishment for you. 
It's that simple. God may have lots of hard things to say in the Bible. Peter said there are things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. That's true. But the most important things, they are just crayon simple. Well, then you might feel like, well, uh, this is a little out of reach for me. God's too high. I'm too much of a sinner. It's just out of my reach. And besides, you don't even know what lifestyle I'm coming out of. This is too much for me. Well, again, Moses uh, comes and Paul comes and I come. We say, it's not. It's not out of reach for you. Paul says, you don't have to make your own way up to God. He came down to you in the incarnation. You don't have to go down to him in the abyss. He came back up to you in the resurrection. He's not out of reach. He's given you a saving word, a word that he says is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart, a word that promises, if we kept reading Romans 10, 13, everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So at the end of all this, nothing about this choice is too hard for you, or too far off for you. It's just like Moses said, Romans 10.9. Paul says it so simple. This is one of my favorite memory verses in college, sharing the gospel. When somebody says, well, what do I do? I don't even know where to start. He says, here it is. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You think that's what I got to do to get eternal life be forgiven of everything I've ever done, and go to heaven forever. I've got to believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead and say with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. That's it? He says, that's it. Now, it's simple. Let me just explain that. You have to to know and assent to the fact that he's the son of God who died and rose again for you. You have to know some things, and you have to confess him as Lord. This means owning him as king. It's not just saying some words. It's owning him as king, following him, but you make that choice, and you will be saved. You will. It's so simple. It's so easy. So soul-crushingly difficult for Christ on your behalf, but so simple for you. So now, suppose at the end of the sermon, God holds out to you one more time, through this sermon, he says, he wants you to choose life. Maybe it just helps you to hear that. Maybe it helps you to hear, God wants you to choose life. He wants that for you. You know he wants you to choose life because why else would he make it so simple? Believe in your heart, confess his name, confess him as Lord. Why else has he made it so within your reach? Why else would he bring it down in Christ, in a person, in a word, written down, preached to you, spoon-fed to you? Why would he do that? It's to show he, he really wants that for you. He wants you to choose life. That's why he's having me go on and on about this. Everything. This sermon's so long. That's why God is going on and on. He wants you to choose life. But also know this. He's made this choice so serious. Tonight, God stands over this sermon as a witness. He's here. Two or three are gathered. He's here. So not only does he hold out life tonight in this sermon, but he will always stand as a witness that he has done so. On the last day, when you stand before him, you won't be able to say, I didn't know. He never told me. It wasn't clear enough. It wasn't believable enough. It was too much for me then. Uh, No one will ever be able to say anything like that. The Bible actually says every mouth will be stopped. 
It's not true. On that day, we'll all be without excuse because he's offering you eternal life right now. And so I say one more time, choose life. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ tonight. And I would love nothing more uh, than to talk about this with you uh, if this is something that you know you need to do after service. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... And can it be? And we believe because your word says, Lord, but it, it's almost too much to take in that you've been this gracious, this good, this accommodating, this... You brought it all so close, so reachable, so, so genuinely desired and offered eternal life with you. Thank you, O Lord, we praise you. Now, O Lord, what's left to be prayed is that if there's anyone here who has never put their faith in you and come into this eternal life, if there's anyone here, O Lord, who has and yet is still kind of wandering from you. Give us more faith. Draw us in. We pray because we know that you've told us to make a choice, but only your spirit can move us to this choice, equip us for this choice. So we pray for help of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.